Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Gavin, how are you, mate? I'm good, I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm yeah, all right. All things considered, I'm doing all right. Uh, wh- <laughs> where are you now and where where should you be now in the alternate reality that would have been? Uh, I would have been somewhere in Europe. I would have just got to Sardinia after a European tour that blew everyone's minds. Um, Obviously. So I had a chance to go to... I like to take my boys, give them a bit of uh, Europe, you know, go on holiday with my friends. And uh, we have this sort of, you know, nice thing where work really hard and then, like, got to take the kids somewhere. So I take, uh, like, my three best uh, friends with me. And um, we get, we were going to crazy place in Sardinia. So there you go. There you go. But I haven't thought about it that much. It's more like I'm excited about having the record coming out. And, you know, some people are, like, seriously suffering out there that it's just like you can't. Do you know what I mean? If that's your biggest loss, then you're you're doing more than all right. So yeah, I I'm all right that. with it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think as well, if you're a creative person and you make a living out of thinking on your feet and making something out of nothing by default, you're quite adaptable and used to rolling with the punches. And I think everybody who's in this field of work, no matter how successful you are now, 
you were once a struggling artist, so it's no surprise to your psyche to kind of be thrown and have obstacles that you've got to work around and overcome. Does that all make sense? Yeah, my whole life is uh, about obstacles, uh, as you point out, for sure. And we have to turn on a on a sixpence or whatever you call it, whatever the phrase is, and we have to make it um, adapt and, and change. And, and uh, you know, the fact that I've had such a long career is a testament to the fact that I completely understand that and completely am always ready and pretty much I don't like change. Nothing, there is nothing but change. So we just we, we deal with it. <laughs> That's all life is, right? Is the great unknown. We just sort of make it yeah. up as we go along. Exactly, exactly. And um, you know, some people find comfort in um, in losing themselves in depression, or find comfort in losing themselves in happiness. You know, it really is like it's honestly. I feel at this point, it's it's, it's definitely a choice of how you react to all these uh, different elements. And as we say, these elements, these challenges, are relentless. Are you doing the washing up, Gavin? <laughs> no, 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 no. There's someone playing a drum kit to see the other side of the room. I'll have them stop. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, um, no, no, I'm joking. So you, uh, you grew up in London. Am I right in thinking that? Yes, I am. That's, yes, I cu- that's currently Swiss where Cottage, I'm chatting to you from. North London. Where, whereabouts was home? Swiss Cottage, exactly where I grew up. And I, I played uh, football for the Abbey Road, so I was a lot in, in, in Kilburn, Quex Road. Um, West Hampstead, bit of Hampstead, bit of Highgate every now and again, but it's pure North London. So Arsenal, North London. And you were born in 65, so you would have been 12 years old in 1977 when I think the world changed beyond belief for the better because of a little four-letter word called punk. And yeah. Everything that yeah. came from that has brought so much to my life. And it's it's, funny, yeah. it's such an amazing period in history that fascinates me. Were you old enough to have caught any of that as it was happening? Were you there? Did you go to any gigs? Like- was, this was like the, uh, this was the, like you spot on, you know, this is that. And it's funny because I was just about to post a picture. I don't normally post pictures of my kids, but um, I do every now and again. I've got this amazing picture of my son um, who's, obsessed with sex pistols and uh it's just amazing to me because uh as you say i was 12 at the time i lived down the road um there's a record shop called manzi's on uh excuse me finchy road i've got corona (laughs) it's all right i think we're Uh, socially distanced enough i'm not going to catch it (laughs) Uh, i worry about yourself already um (laughs) yeah uh so basically i grew up um right next to within walking distance to a, a record shop um and and what they would do are oh, you fucking kidding me what they would do is uh, let me get rid of this no worries mate this is, this is a they, they do these um how soft calls are insurance <laughs> um i i that so i spent my pocket money on that and so exactly that whole thing you're talking about it was a revolution there'd be nothing like that again and um the outrage you felt in in society, and like my my older sister, she was a punk, so she had all the kind of, you know, fifteen to nineteen years old. They were all in bands. Everyone's in squats. <coughs> there was like just a whole world of people. So you were exposed I, to all of that from a super a token, early age. I was a token. I was a token twelve year old with like spiky hair. Even though my hair 
<clears throat> a bit curly, but with the egg white, we used to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my yeah. My sister would spike out for me, and I'd sort of have one like bit of a bit of safety pin from the lip or in the shirt, and uh, <clears throat> go on the 31 bus down to um, the King's Road. We'll come down the King's Road, see the Teds and the Punks, uh, walk into traditionaries. But I was, I was 12, so, you know, at 14, I was down there um, um, when uh, Public Image played on the rooftop. I've had John uh, Lydon on this show. What a force of oh, nature that guy is. He's incredible. Oh, I love, yeah, he's an incredible man. I love him. Uh, so you saw them at the peak, exactly, the peak of their powers? I was in, I was in, no, because they never played that day. Right, and right, right. The, you know what I mean? And and so as far as actually seeing gigs, you know, I helped my sister's band um, take the equipment to the to the shows, whatever pubs in North London, in Highgate, um, in uh, Finchley, uh, up in, um, uh, where am I, you know, near the Arsenal Archway, all of those pub shows. But I was too young to go in, so I was just way outside, like the token kid. And... Um, so I don't have the romantic stories of being in the gig, but I have the romantic truth of like being outside and, and all my sister's friends would like, you know, grab me off to the side, you know, a couple of years older than me, just like snog me. And, like, Amazing. Like, oh, this is great. So uh, you, you were basically the character that Thomas Turgoose plays in This Is England. You were Sean. I don't know. I was definitely in it and it wasn't <laughs> um, at the side of me. I was dead center. Um, thanks to my sister really um and all the people that she knew so that exactly shaped my life i mean that to me sex pistols never mind the bollocks is the most perfect record most perfect band ever like just a band in one record even more so than guns and roses um what's amazing about that album as well is it still sounds fresh and exciting today like it hasn't dated at all lyrically yeah. in terms of the guitar tone like everything about it still sounds potent and powerful and and like raw yeah yeah for sure i just i was playing teaching my son how to play bodies amazing um literally two days ago i sat in his room both of us in you know just both of us on guitar sitting there Topless, because in the morning, you know, just got a pair of shorts each and just jamming. I was late at night. I was like, listen, I do this. And he's really into playing guitar. He just likes punk. So I've been playing in a gang of four. Like, he really likes Green Day. I said, no, that's cool, but like, like this is the Sex Pistols. Now he's loving the sex, in love with the Sex Pistols. Then I played him Gang of Four. I played him Public, public Image to show him how, you know, if you do punk music now, you've got to take the spirit of it. Everyone's done the pop punk stuff, you know. Yeah. Just, just get out on a limb and like get a bit angular. So I've been playing in Gang of Four because I think that's really good. It's just, a, it's just, it's just a bit more intricate, you know. And, and he's such a natural musician that actually, uh, once you realise, what if you can play a little bit, you want to go a little bit beyond the kind of thrash, fast stuff, you know. It's nice to play that as well, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to like be like, look. Check it out. This is Tool. So I'm playing a bit of Tool and a bit of, you know, more intricate stuff and sort of more classical based rock things, you know, just to kind of open it up. But he's only 14. He's only the beginning. So it's, 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 it's really an incredible thing to be able to connect with him on because I, I haven't actually forced it. It's just this natural uh, inquisition that he has for it, which I, he didn't have like uh, eight months ago. That's amazing. I guess that's the age when it happens. 
for me yeah. it was very much 13 and then 14 bang you're in it and it's like girls music yeah <laughs> hopefully it, not it. booze and all the rest of it but you know maybe um as we all go through i'm sure i mean what happens so after punk because obviously punk was kind of over and done before everybody knew it and then it evolved into you know it went into post-punk and goth and new romantic and new wave and all these different strands where did you go uh with your musical path after punk sort of you know came and went and and moved on and evolved where did you go That's next what I, your really, taste? I really got into like more more um aggressive kind of dance hall you know public image so that really glenn branker cycles repetition um kind of bit pair ubu you love know that. i really love that and that that's pair ubu then led into the jesus lizard yeah. and the whole underground american scene and uh Jane's addiction. Uh, uh, um, I've had Perry obviously. on the show as well. He's amazing, amazing. Character. Yeah, he. I saw this one show. That's when I was like seventeen or eighteen. I started to see a few shows. I saw uh, the Chili Peppers when they played once in Hammersmith, um, and they had a uh, Hillel on guitar. You know, that oh, wow. was a long time ago, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I saw Jane's addiction when they had Eric Avery on bass. Yeah, at Ackland Hall on Portobello. And that was like a small club. And that really was the, um, the moment where I uh, lost my mind in terms of performance. And that's really, you know, a lot of the time I try and see it. It's really interesting to ask these questions because the reason why I did the Bush, a band like Bush is because, first off, the energy of punk, I found reborn in Mudhoney. You know, I found yep. it reborn in those, those bands, uh, Jesus Lizard, uh, Shellac. Uh, Rape Man, Big Black, you know, those bands. Absolutely, yeah. Huskadoo, Replacements. Huskadoo, exactly, Huskadoo. Um, you listen to those bands, and I was listening at the same time, like the Pixies, uh, Throwing Muses, uh, My Bloody Valentine. You know, these Great were all stuff. really massive bands for me, they were rock music. Like, I didn't really connect to, like, Hair Metal, uh, Def Leppard, Poison, even Guns N' Roses, I kind of obviously respected them because I could, there's great fucking tunes, but somehow the aesthetic wasn't, you know, David Yao, wasn't, wasn't all, all those, um, you know, that, that, uh, that whole American hardcore scene. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Fugazi, you know, Fugazi, Gang of Four. They're doing this cool rock thing. And then when I saw Perry, I just fell in love with the whole performance side of it. And I think it's probably with, with Britpop, where I just found it too mannered and too orderly. I just can't, I just couldn't believe it. And like everyone treating their guitars like up under their armpits. Like I want fucking fire and flames, and I want Hendrix, but no one could play like him. So I hate blues guitar. You know, blues guitar rock, fucking nonsense. You know, it's just <laughs> like that's why I've been in a rock band for all this time. I never played the blues. I mean, I know that on the first few records with with Nigel, his style had a bluesy thing with a slide, but we always kept away from the blues. And whenever anyone solos near me and it sounds a bit bluesy, I'm like, that is going nowhere. Mine's always like weirder, stranger stuff. Like Nigel was really good at that weird shit. Chris is kind of out there from a hardcore background. So there's no other kind of like bluesy solos where someone like, hey, blow it, man. Let it rip, you know, all that nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's none of that. And that's why I've always kept on that side of the tracks. And that's the genesis of the band and how along with my own flavor, that's always, that I kept on that side. It's an alternative side. And that's why I fell in love with that music. 
because uh, it had everything I loved. You know, when you listen to Jesus Lizard, it's got all the guitar and the bass, and the angular guitar and like rolling bass. Um, and that's what really inspired me. And then Perry's performance was just like immense. I mean, like, you go and see Kevin Shields and My Bloody Valentine, it was, that was shoegazing because it, everyone was gazing their shoes, literally. And it's not that interesting to watch in comparison to Perry Farrell, David Yao, you know, these, these shaman on stage. That's what I've always based my stage stuff on is to be as wild and shamanic and surprising and angular and weird and, you know, just lost in music. You know, that's why I'm so uh, into playing shows because I think that's a huge part of it, um, of our whole aesthetic is how we perform. Let me ask you this, Gavin, because it's interesting to me that you got Clive Langer to produce the first album when at that point his kind of CV was a lot of the stiff record type kind of post-punk new wave, Dexys Midnight Runners, Madness, Elvis Costello, Morrissey, all that kind of stuff seems to be quite out of step with all the, the touch points you're referencing. So how did he come to be the guy to do that first record? And was it a, you know, a good, positive, productive experience working with him on 16 Stone? Um, the reason was really simple. I mean, I always go off instinct and, and simplicity, right? Um, people overthink most things. So I loved shipbuilding so oh, much. Oh, man, song. what a song. So I figured that the guy who wrote that song, the guy had had this history of all these hits, and I grew up loving Madness here in North London. Yeah. I love Madness, right? I just recently and saw them at the Royal Albert Hall like a, a couple of months before... COVID here. Really? And, and, so and the early records were like, you know, especially that first record. Yeah, Matt. Well, they were doing oh, like God. Bed and Breakfast Man and all those early hits. It just was just the sound of the street, the sound of where I grew up, you know, where I played football. Everyone was skinheads, everyone was suede heads. Even though I was into punk, Bowie, Roxy's music, and I was the sort of the weird left of center kid. I, you know, my youth club, I was one of the girls who were the punks, you know, and everyone else. All my kids, the friends I grew up with were Farrah's, Gabichis. Ford Escorts remodeling. Um, so you know, basically, I mean, like although, real... you were, although you were connected to the American underground music, you were still very much a Londoner at heart, and so you were inspired by that Well, I just was subculture. surrounded by that Asbos. Surrounded by Asbos. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Patrice Russian. And, uh, um, you know, jazz funk. And yeah, yeah. rollerblading on your, on, with the plimsolls, you know, on your trainers. Putting, you know what I mean? Like that fucking regular regular stuff, regular life stuff, football fans. Yeah. That style. Beach Gabichis and Farrah's, that was it. And like, you know, Fred Perry's it would have moved on from Fred Perry's, you know. And it was all like sort of diamond things and I just feel like fucking I got a couple of those tops. I got one pair of Farrah's Gabichis. This is fucking bullshit. But Bowie looks so much cooler. So I never dressed like that or thought like that, but that's everyone I grew up with. Um apart from my school. Um my school was a whole different, um, <laughs> whole different thing. So that created the kind of schizophrenia in me. That was really academic. But um, where I grew up, everyone was just like basically football fans and um, really multicultural, black and Irish together. That was basically it and me. And uh, uh, so I have all this crazy mixture of stuff, of history in me. And um, that's what makes it interesting. You know, that's why it's so important to find your own voice because each of us, uh, we have our own voices and our own kind of genesis and genealogy. And uh, that's what makes everyone so interesting. So I love the performance and the energy from punk. So I like, that's why I like the American Sound 
also shipbuilding I loved, and I went to meet him in the pub in Camden. I Wh- really which one? Him. Do you remember? It's the one that was on. It's um, on Archway. Uh, if you go down from Primrose Hill. So I can't remember what the pub's called. It's actually gone now. Oh, like it has gone, is it? Home. Well, I guess Probably they're all gone now Asian, as well, aren't they? Yeah. It's the Asian home. So, um, and I liked him. And I thought we were American enough. And that's the point of it. I just was figured, like, look, fuck, we got, everyone's going to think we're American anyway. Because <laughs> that was the sound we had. Yeah, yeah. And I thought Clive was the only hope. Where could bring him around? It turned out it, it made no difference whatsoever because everyone thought we, were, uh, we had a grunge for want of a better word, I mean, Come Down is not a grunge song. That's a freaking Billy Cobham bass line. So it's nonsense. But we did have some grunge elements in there, 100%, and the performance was really grunge-related. And it was exciting. That was the time, and um, and that's how it all came about. So it's interesting how you have all these things, all these factors that make us who we are. It's not just one thing. It's very Malcolm Gladwell. It's very like Blink. If you read it. Um, <laughs> is that your dog? Yeah, that's my that's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> what you're feeding um, it? <laughs> it's it's interesting. Much, I, you know, you, were you thirty or almost thirty when Sixteen Stone came out as well? Were you twenty nine? Something a little bit later. Yeah, twenty seven when I think we twenty six, twenty seven when we signed. Yeah, it was very late. Everything was very late. Did you but, feel like you were a little bit older and wiser and ready for? I mean, does anything prepare you? Because obviously, to be honest, that album just true, exploded, didn't it? it? The funny thing about it is, is that I felt really like there was a, a sense of I'd been I'd failed for so long and been around for so long that I was worried that I wouldn't that I would get removed before I'd have a chance to have a shot. I mean, so a sort of a, a panic that wasn't really allowed to to feel like that and that, that that to happen. So to me, it was just that that tor- self torture that goes with um, being an artist. I just tortured myself about it. As daft as a date was, and nothing to do with my fault, as dumb as it was, I tortured myself with like, well, it's going to be taken away from you any minute anyway. Fucking lucky you got in the building, mate. Yeah. And and that was a weird thing, you know, and it's one weird when you look back on your own life and you realize that, I mean, from my own point of view, you know, I have this um, punitive, Super ego. That's the psychiatric uh, analysis of my personality, which means that I'm always going to beat myself up. So I took that as a way of, um, oh, was I ever going to, what was I ever doing? I mean, imagine I just never gave up. I just continued to work and was always like the sort of the, the black sheep. That's why I probably never got signed in England. It's been around a bit too much and uh, people didn't really know what to make of me. And I kept on, I've basically been trying to write the same rock song ever since I began writing songs. So it's not like I really changed, but uh, it was funny how I had to come to America to get the record deal. What it, what it, I was like 27, 26, 27. And that's like, you know, you start to feel like, oh, it's like a, a girl who feels like, you know, she's gone past marrying. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's this kind of trend, like, isn't there, in the, the music industry? I'm going past the career age. If the it, career <laughs> age, you know, people are like, look, he's only 17. It's like, I mean, I did get signed really fast when I began writing songs like six months after we began writing songs I signed to Warner Chapel for five thousand pounds and then when I you know then years later seven eight years later um I had to pay I don't know 340 grand to Warner's to pay to buy myself out of the contract <laughs> wow like, yeah fuck that's not it's an really uncommon awesome. story either is it 
Well, what was that, what's uncommon is they actually let me do it. That was what's incredible because they it was, my publishing was worth a lot more than that, and I was fine to them. Stupid. I don't even know how I did a deal that was like, I mean, for so I mean, you would you'd get out of it now, and I'd be able to sue them forever because that was like slave labor. But it literally seven or eight years and they apparently hadn't paid back the five grand or something <laughs> did you move you know? out to america pretty soon after the release no, of 16 no, stone or did no, you stay in england no. for a while i stayed in england forever i mean i only moved to america when i had a baby right right my first son here and uh, obviously at that point initially the plan always in my life with gwen was that we would live in london i was right. like i'm not leaving london LA is a graveyard for musicians. Are you kidding me? Like people are like, no, no, no. And then, as soon as she started to, um, you know, go to doctors' visits and that, it was obvious that she wanted something American. You know, English people want English healthcare, and Americans want American. It's just natural. So that was it. So and I never thought about it really ever since. I just I'm here because of them, and most of the things in my life are to do with them, and through the prism of all of my children. You know? I'm a good dad. How's it been in lockdown? Have you been with your kids? Have they been with their, uh, mu- their mum? Yeah, 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 they began it with me, and then they went away for two months because uh, they had the opportunity to go somewhere away to a you know a secluded place. And I didn't know at that point when it first began. We thought, oh yeah, it'd be get a couple of weeks, and looking, then looking, looking at you know, and it just seemed. Well, it was more that you, it was terrifying. Was it going to be just like in the air and were they all going to get it? And I was like, well, they're better off. So they went away for a little bit. So I had a weird time being here on my own with a few friends that had quarantine coming in and out. But generally I was on my own. And so that was pretty wild. Yeah. <clears throat> and then... Um, I've been in a similar boat, sort of three months of solitude. It's a trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, you know, it's like, there was the economic well, there's the health impact that was killing people, and uh, literally, and the uh, economic devastation. You know, people losing their businesses, their jobs, they can't eat, they can't, you know, this and that. So, if you had enough money for sandwiches and you weren't sick, you'd have to shut the fuck up. Yeah, to shut your mouth and stay. Shut your mouth and stay home, and shut your mouth again. That's it. <laughs> and like, I couldn't get it. People complaining on board. It's like. Just be grateful that you're, you know, not if you're not in those categories. And uh, how can you be bored? I mean, all yeah. you need is a phone. Yeah, I don't so think anybody sh- could ever be bored in today's world. Like, there's every song ever written at the touch of a button. You know, you can get any movie ever made just by renting it. Books yeah. <laughs> still, you remember those things? <laughs> I've actually written a book yeah. during lockdown, Gavin. That's what I've been up to. Use the time wisely. Nice. And, That's um, impressive. I was I was listening to an interview of you. You studied literature at college or university, right? You were a literature student. Um, no, I just I just I my my A levels were English, French, and Spanish, and I right. learned the language and I read the, the the literature. So what I got was a really beautiful start um, with uh, English literature, French, and Spanish, and that you know having those three powerhouse histories. Um, as in, you know, for information was really, I don't know. I mean, there's no, it's no disconnect that I'm obsessed with words. Yeah. I do love to read. I, 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 you know, I'm reading all the time, different speeds at different times, you know, but uh, there's always something Does on the Does literature influence you as a lyricist? The writers influence you as a songwriter? 
Of course, the whole time. I mean, nothing but. You know, I, I read. We we need people's, um, you know, articulation and and um, people to, for people to be succinct and clear and precise and concise. And the more they are like that, the better the use of the word. The more intriguing and the more informative. I mean, look, you know, I've got a song on a new record called "Words Not Impediments," <laughs> and uh, we're we're at a time where communication is key communication is everything yep yeah um in, in terms of specific writers or books are there any that stand out that really shaped um, you early on um, yeah well, well there's there's people like um alan ginsburg charles bukowski oh yeah classics uh, paul Auster, um ee e. cummings uh Raina Maria Rilke, you know, these people just, they write in certain ways. But I can read, I can read a Balzac book and just be like, take it away. It's like watching the most gorgeous French film of life, you know, just yeah, to yeah, like, yeah. You just read that. And, it, and I really mean it in a non-pretentious way because I don't like it when it's so kind of like erudite and, you know, I, I mean, I mean, you know, journeys for people to, read and identify and enjoy and just basically a high class use of time Balzac's buried in the same cemetery as Jim Morrison I think in Paris I remember going to see the Jim Morrison yeah that's the one yeah yeah. yeah. I remember going there before they had the armed guards now I think they have like round the clock armed guards because people were just going to Jim Morrison's grave and I think just partying literally on it and so I think it's a bit more regulated and secure now but when I went you could just sort of go up and put a you know, a guitar plectrum on it or whatever you wanted to do. And, and Oscar Wilde's in there as well. Yeah, I mean, that's no joke. If you're going to die, that's supposed to be. <laughs> uh, let me ask you about some of your Hollywood experiences, if that's all right, Gavin. I, I was watching the other night. I forgot you were in it. Um, and the fir- well, the first cameo in it, this is weird, Zoolander. And there's the big scene where there's the big fashion launch event. And the first cameo in that movie is Donald Trump. And I can't remember whether you remember that he's in there or not, but he is. He's the first one talking I've done, about... I think just, I've done like seven or seven movies now. I've just shot one um, that's receiving a lot of backlash because Paris Hilton, Jackson is playing Jesus. Right. And uh, that's called Habit, and that's uh, getting a lot of attention right now. 250,000 signatures according to Bannett, to the Catholics. Now, I'm wondering whether there's same 250,000 people signed any petitions about uh, the uh, priests and the uh, their um, issues with uh, paying people off for sexual abuse claims. Now, yeah. I wonder if the same people are signing us, the same one or different or different Catholics, different sects. Um, so I, I, I love it. Um, so Zooland is bullshit. Like I, I, I sat there as the camera went past me. I did not have any acting, any lines. No, there's so. there's no dialogue in there. But I mean, what no, was the, no, what, was the what, what was the energy like on that set though? It must have been a fun set to be on for that day. It was all right. I remember going there with Gwen. It was a bit a bit chaotic. I remember going there and not knowing where to go, wandering around a bit. Then we found someone, you know, third AD. They put us in a trailer, and no one was that friendly. And then we sort of walked on and did the scene and sat in the rafters and then there was only two shots of Gwen, one shot of me, which is, you know, very ladylike, you know, it should be the way, lady first, lady first. 
and she's very beautiful. So that was it. And I left. So I don't really. That's, I mean, I definitely do not count that for me. I, that'd be me really desperate to be in booze. Claim I was in that, literally. <laughs> but but the other ones, you know. Well, no, you've done some I've legit had... acting as well. Obviously, Constantine. You've got loads of amazing intense yeah. scenes with Keanu in that. Um, yeah. I mean, what was it like working with him? Because at that point, obviously, he's probably one of the biggest, well, still is now, but particularly then, one of the biggest action movie stars in the world, especially that brand of supernatural action films like Devil's Advocate and The Matrix. Like He's just the king of that little subgenre. Um, yeah, what's your memories fantastic. of working with him on that film? Um, really generous. I mean, you know, as an actor, really, you, you, you crave, you need uh, generous actors to work, to, to act with, to work off of. And you tell people's generosity by the passion they put into the shots when they're off camera, you know? Yeah. That's the one that's the big moment, the big tell for me is, are they going to, um, what are they going to be like? Uh, and he was really generous and Jim and Hunt Sue's in that as well. And it's just a great energy. And for me, I did drive to that set um, surmising that I was definitely 100% the most um, inexperienced person on that set. The janitor <laughs> it's a had big more movie. experience on that movie. It was a $100 million movie. And I was just showing up like fucking... Let's get to work. Just like chanting... <laughs> Just like bluffing, just like the poker guy. Look, here comes poker. Here comes poker. Because I'd never really done a, I'd done a, an ensemble piece that I did do a thing, but I was like, no, you're the most experienced on this set. So just like, just hit the ground running. So I, I did, and I loved it. I have to ask then, how did you land the role? How did you manage to find yourself in a room with all these like titans of acting and on this um, insane I, big budget I, set? I did, I did. I did the, uh, I remember going to Santa Monica, I did a reading to someone and the writer, Akiva Goldsman, wrote my manager and said that I had done the words exactly as he had imagined them and he just couldn't, he, he, he was so thrilled that I brought his words to life like that. Like something like that. It was really, really complimentary. Wow. And you learn and you realize that so much of it is, um, just being the right type. Yeah. You know, when people write things and why you get, I mean, I've done loads of auditioning that I didn't get and loads of auditions that I did get. Um, and uh, the last two movies I've done, Sophia Coppola, I didn't have to audition for. and this The last, Bling Ring, right? Uh, yeah, The Bling Ring I didn't have to audition for and this last one I didn't, I just got offered it. So I've got enough work now that people even know if they want me or not. But when I did the, 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 the Constantine audition, that was a really high compliment and um i've always been amazed i've never done anything else for him and i know him and i like him and i really really like him and i just always like thought it'd be, a, a, be a, the beginning of our working relationship but apparently it was the, our only working relationship <laughs> well maybe it'll come around again it's interesting i did a podcast a while back with stephen graham and he said he worked on gangs in new york with scorsese in like i guess 2002 2003 and scorsese said to him at the end of that shoot we'll work together again and he was like you know you don't have to say that if you don't mean it and he's like no no we will and then it wouldn't be until the irishman which just came out last year that they'd revisit that relationship. So maybe it will happen. Um, it's just, it isn't the right time just yet. But how, I love your attitude. How was working with Sophia? Because she's a really interesting filmmaker. I love her work. She's beautiful. She glides. She literally glides across the room 
and she, she's it's uh, everyone who works on her um, stuff looks like a super cool artist from Brooklyn. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everyone's yeah, yeah, like yeah. relaxed, like the laziest outfit ever, but really, really amazing. Um, and um, she's wonderful, you know. And, and uh, again, I really enjoyed that, and I got to work actually with Paris Hilton in that movie. So yeah, I've worked with Paris Jackson. Paris Hilton, all the great. It's a really interesting um, story, isn't it? And period in like American LA history. Yeah, for sure. Yes. You did another American. Go on, sorry, mate. What are you going to say? No, no. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the bling ring especially was a fantastic story. And uh, this habit with with Bella Thorne, who's devastating and gorgeous, sexy, spirited actor uh, and she's a she's just incredible i loved uh, playing opposite her i want to check out the film i haven't managed to find it ahead of our chat but i want to i wonder if you could tell me about it this movie you did it's like an american indie film called how to rob a bank really interesting cast of characters you've got nick Starr who plays the yellow bastard in sin city you've got terry cruz who's just hilarious and everything you've obviously got bill David Carradine from Kill Bill, and then Leo Fitzpatrick from Kids as well, and yourself. What was that film like to work on? And would you recommend checking it out? Should I investigate it and find it? Yeah, I think it, I did hear. I saw one cut of it early on, and I hadn't, didn't think it had worked. I really enjoyed it. I went from so I went from Constantine to a hundred million dollar movie to a million dollar movie, where I had much more work, and you shoot far, far quicker. Yeah. And you, you know, you just no time to mess up. You got to know your lines and uh, and take, you know, cut and move on. And Andrew, the director, he just recently actually passed away. Um, it's very sad. Yeah, he, he wanted to work with me on every movie. He's like, I want you to hit all my films. Then he, um, oh, deep. Um, so it was a great, it was a great experience. I need to see it again. I needed some time away from it. I don't know. I saw something the other night and they were talking about it and I was like, yeah, I don't know if it worked. And he's a friend of his. He goes, yeah, I don't think it worked. I was like, shit. He got double confirmed that it worked. But to me, they're all just like moments in time and to be in a film, you're just part of it. You can't have, I mean, with my records, I have more control over. But being in a film, you know, it's like, I'm just a really small part of it. It's a very big thing. So if the whole thing didn't work, it's not my fault. And if it works, I'm happy to be part of it. You know, Constantine's a great film. It's a bit confusing, and I think if it was a bit less confusing, um, it would have had sequels, and we would be on like you know Constantine Five. You know uh, that that that's what I was like. I said to Keanu in New York when saw John Wick, I was like, "How the fuck? Why the fuck is that? Um, they didn't make Constantine, and he goes didn't make enough money." I was like, "Oh no!" He said, "Sometimes you got not, you can't ask." Why can't we do that? It wasn't successful enough. But everyone seems to love that. It was like a cult hit movie. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What about the, um, I want to ask you about Woodstock 99. Um, one of those iconic moments in, in live music history. Uh, who, who was on the bill the same day as Bush that year? Do you remember? Um, I Limp Biscuit. Well, okay, right. <laughs> so it was Carnage, was on... it? Was that the crazy day? Yeah, um, that was. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was kind of incredible, and I hadn't really heard of it because we'd been away making this uh, record, and uh, we came back, flew in for this show, and um, and there was this, this band. So you know, Corn played the Chili Peppers. We are day event schedule. Yeah. Wow, it was really incredible. Really incredible. Um, yeah, Chemical Brothers played. We played on that. I think we played on the Sunday. Yeah, Muse played. What so, about? Anyway, yeah, what experience. Was it, is that one that stands out as one of those? You know, leg- well, legendary just, moments in time. Because it's weird when you have all of these bands that are all all powerful in this one place at this one you know, point in time. Um, I, yeah. I don't feel like these events that we have now, obviously, currently there aren't any, obviously, but I really feel like, without being too overly sentimental or nostalgic, I feel like there was a point in time when these kind of iconic events became lesser and fewer and further in between. Yeah, I mean, I think that you... The, the nature of streaming, the knock-on effect of streaming, and, and uh, the fact that people feel like they have, well, they financially have to tour more, floods the market more. Um, other promoters see the festivals working; they they promote festivals. People enjoy festivals, so it's, it used to be a bit more specialized and a bit more. Now there's so many festivals all the time; it's like endless festivals um, because people love them. So. But I would say that each one you play, and I've played a lot of them, like I don't play any of them differently. Like I was, when I walked onto the stage at Woodstock, it did take my breath away, 250,000 people in front. And the stage was really massive because I love the perversion of never looking outside, never looking at the crowd, and just being backstage. And then when you come on stage, you get a rush yeah. of seeing the crowd. I love that. So. I did that with there, and as I went on, I was like, was that a good idea tonight? I don't know. <laughs> Shit. Information overload. Been, yeah, I'd been, I think I'd been living in Ireland by then. Um, I was like, 
just a bit secluded. And so I really went from famine to feast, uh, people wise. And, um, it was a beautiful night and great memories and, you know, part great to be something, part something so iconic. You've worked with some amazing people over the years, mate, and just a couple of producers which stand out. We'll go to Steve Albini first. Uh, obviously, you made that record in Abbey Road as well. Um, I mean, as somebody who grew up listening to these, you know, noisy, industrial, angular, underground American punk bands, which Steve Albini would have, you know, worked on a lot of those records, to be with him and in Abbey Road, what kind of uh, an amazing trip was that? Does it stand out as a happy experience or, or how was it making razor blades it, it was incredible you know um we had uh, we found ourselves after the first record success the first record and you know we were on top of the world and i met him and uh um i really loved the sound of the pj harvey rid of me record yeah um amazing. i really loved uh surf rosa which is a pixies record of choice for me where is my mind so again, I only need, as I said to you about Clive and uh, and shipbuilding and meeting him, I only need two factors. And I thought that um, we'd been playing live so much. That's what separated us from, especially now, from even further from Britpop, was the incendiary nature of the live show. It just seemed that a Britpop goes so orderly and mannered um, that I just wanted to roll around in the dirt and the dust and, 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 you know, get really abrasive. And the Jesus Lives that I love so much and uh, the PJ Harley record I love so much. I just, when we were going for lunch with Steve Albini in, uh, in Greek town in Chicago with him and Heather. And he wrote a letter to my manager saying, um, whilst um, he's gotten so, used to um, all different types of people over the years, he's almost he's immune um, his girlfriend Heather has an amazing bullshit detector and what she felt about Gavin is that he is really um, he is really genuine about how, what he's doing and the music he wants to make and so for that reason I'd be delighted to uh, make a, a, a record with Bush for their upcoming record wow. and um, it was an amazing letter which my manager still has and um, I was going to say do you still have it I hope so yeah no no it's my mate wrote to my manager and I, I, I always loved that that letter and uh, yeah we had an amazing experience with him we began at Hook End actually we, we did in the countryside and there was a problem with his visa and some issue so we began down there and then we had to reconvene and, and we changed it we changed it to London we did the Abbey Road Studio Two, and it was just incredible because everything was pretty much live. And I mean, when I listened to that record, it's a bit. There's elements of it a bit bloated for me here and there, and I can sort of edit certain pieces. But it lives and breathes. It was really about the fact that we stretched every song on our first record to fit the arenas that we were playing and the time slots we had, which got longer. So we got a bit, a little bit um, excessive, a little bit bloated, but it was just you know, so abrasive and when the band's on and, and uh, I love it for that. You know, it's just, it's really brave and I probably would have been more successful if I'd made another one like 16 Stones on Back with Clyde, which is what we did the record after because then I wanted to make a more of a hi-fi record and a bit more, um, a bit more England to it. So I worked with Tom Elmhurst as a programmer 
um, who went on to mix um, Adele and you know Grammy award winning, all this stuff, really amazing career that Tom's had. Um, Amy Winehouse, and uh, he he did the more futuristic stuff in one studio, and then Clive Lang was in the other studio doing more band stuff. Going to be, I don't know what we're doing, and we're doing sort of you know <laughs> more and more, you know more and more blows arriving and uh, he's going, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> like, you know, living the dream. The good it? old days. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. saw you guys live on that tour, the Science of Things tour. Uh, it's oh, probably like early 2000, like January 2000 at the Wolverhampton, uh, at the Wolverhampton oh. Civic Hall. I'm from Birmingham originally. Oh, so, nice. so I saw you in oh, Wolves great. and I remember that show being like chaos. I think it was only my second ever gig. And I just remember, like, you know, mosh pits and stage diving. That was my first experience and introduction yeah. to a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And I was like, wow, fucking rock and roll's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. That's big, that's big for me. Um, when Bush called time in 2002, what was the reasons why? And then we'll, we'll get to the, the reasons why you then reformed later on as well. Um, but how come you originally decided to hang up the boots in 2002? I didn't, there's no hanging out of the boots. I wanted to do a side record. I was all impressed by the bands that were on Maverick or whether it was like the Deftones and Chino with his side team sleep. I just liked all these bands that um, did these side projects. And I thought, what a fun thing to do, do a quick side project. But I was on Interscope. And so that was side project took, project took three years. So that was, was the, 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 the Insight record, uh, Institute record, yeah? Yeah. So the Institute record, which was fucking really great and a great experience and Paige Hamilton and, it was really fun, and um, it's a shame because it should have been a Bush record because I missed those songs. Because I really want to play those songs every now and again, you know. But uh, I still can, I suppose. Um, and then when I came back, you know, Nigel wanted to—he wanted a bit of time off. He'd missed one of his kids growing up, his first kid, which I now do understand. But at the time, I was like, "All right, well, I'll do this record." And um, then they didn't want to reform, and I did my solo record. And really, the truth is, I should have done Bush right instead of my solo record but so it just went from a side project to my solo record you know that was the the time off when it, when it means i never stopped working i never really stopped touring yeah um yeah. and well i didn't tour for a bit because i was making a solo record and then after that i just went back to doing bush because when i did the solo record and I had a massive hit it just still was too much about um it was still about uh wanting to do this uh People be like, you know, go on, play everything's in. Bob Bob Rock did your solo album, right? Yeah. And then he did the next Bush record. Oh, wow. And again, what an icon of production. So many amazing records. What was the the album or two of his that he'd done that that made you want to work with him? Um, Any of the Metallica records, really, is what I was really coming from, you know. And uh, obviously he did five records with them. So I just thought that, that I wanted to be in business with someone who, be in business, I wonder if he's that phrase. In bed with. He's very well dressed, but, you know, it's not, he's not my type. Um, <laughs> I love Bob. Um, I just knew I could learn stuff from him, and he's really cool, and I loved him. And so I got off of, like, you know, he has to have the history and the kind of provenance, and he's had made months and millions, you know, million uh, selling albums. Yeah. Um, but I really liked him, and so I've been really lucky. Same with Dave Sardi, you know, you meet these people, um, and you just want to make records with them, you learn from them, and you see how they operate and what they do, and so it's just been part of my journey, really. 
really lucky. I have worked, as you say, I have worked with like some devastatingly good people, which is another trick to longevity. You just yes. surround yourself with really good people. That's and jo- uh, Josh Freese drummed on that record as well, and he's just like he's the guy, isn't he? He's amazing. Yeah, he's done. He, he did my Institute record, he did my solo record, and he did my um, some other Bush tracks sometimes actually. Is Shirley Manson a good pal of yours? I love her. I think she's such a. I do. A cool I don't person. know if I lost her in the divorce fire. You know, you get divorced, you're a bit of a fire, and I don't know whether I lost her. Everybody has to pick a side, done. right, of husband or wife. Well, they actually don't, but some people in Feel like their they do. Yeah. ignorant ways do, and I sort of can't help but think that might be the case. But I'm sure if I saw her again, it'd be good. But we've always been great pals, and I always got along with her. So I hope so. Um, I hope so. I, I love and respect her a lot, and she was fantastic on the record. Were you friends with, with Chester Bennington? I know you sung on the Lincoln Park Memorial concert event which was amazing i got to see some of that online yeah i mean I, yes i mean more of a i would call it a professional acquaintance you know yeah. full of courtesy and respect and if i'd see him or when i'd see him it would be you know 25 minute conversation minimum you know what i mean chat yeah. shoot the breeze just a good few times enough times i mean it's what's so weird isn't it about death death you you want to um you know you wish you could get more time back with everyone more people you know you obviously come from an era where there's so many casualties whether it's drugs or suicide or you know alcohol um what do you think it was about that 90s period in music there's just a real dark cloud over so many of these incredible artists and amazing bands and such sad stories for so many individuals um i think that that music is a refuge for really broken people and i think the more broken the better i think it's a it's a it's a, it's a really tough ask but the closer you live to the flame the more interesting you are you know yep and um I think that of all the all the crutches that we use, I think that when you get into heroin, and now I suppose opiates of any kind like that, yeah, you've, you've left behind the Neil Young, you know, smoke a joint before you write a song, you know, uh, Ginsburg, I smoke marijuana all the, whenever chance I get, you know, you know, drink a bit, have a laugh, you know, whatever. You, You've lost it. There's a darkness that comes with that side of it. And so I think, truthfully, that's always existed. I mean, look at the problem you have now in this country with the fentanyl. I mean, in America, with fentanyl. Yeah. Um, suicides and death, not suicides, ODs, rather. So drug, drugs is just a huge part of it. I mean, and, and broken people, let's face it, are by far the most interesting. I mean, they're more vanilla. Well, the perfect kind of manicured hothouse kid. Uh, growing up in a perfect environment is going to be like the dullest, the dullest knife in the drawer, you know? Uh, so oh, I think hey, it all yeah. goes hand in hand. And I don't think that it's, I hazard a guess that it's just it, human nature throughout history. I don't think there's any worse time than others. I just think that people hear about it more than other times. How have you managed to protect yourself mentally over the years from I haven't. Know, the wreckage? I haven't. I haven't. So that's what makes it. That's what gives it. That's what. That's what. Um, 
that's what gives it, you know, that's what gives it the power. What's your experience so, with fame been like, Gavin? Is that's obviously another form of of drug and it's it's a very powerful, damaging, crazy, you know, plague. Sometimes it can obviously be beneficial and, you know, can give people a life and a career, but there's there's a trade off and a dark side to fame as well, right? And you've obviously been kinda in the uh the eye of that storm in your life. Um what's your dance with fame been like? What's your experience with that side of your I, craft? I try and have a, I try and have a healthy a healthy uh connection to it in that I see myself at this point in my life um, as a working musician. And so when I think of fame, I kind of think of Kylie Jenner or, you know what I mean? That's fame. And when I think of myself, I'm just fully aware that because of the work that I've done and because of um, my personal life, there's lots of people that know me as well. But I have really essential, necessary, obligatory disconnect to it where I can't take myself too seriously um, I never expect people to know me it's a really big world and I've sold 20 million albums and I have like whatever it is you know people that, that check out what we do so the 7 billion people in the world that means by definition there's a lot more people that don't know the fuck I am by a million miles and so I totally appreciate that and respect that and I don't um it doesn't stress me. And when I go out on the stage and people do know me, it kind of fills me with joy because they know me on a, in a festival capacity. If they get crazy in a festival capacity, it really is truthfully because they really like the sound. And they, you know, all right, there's the kind of whole tabloid stuff that goes with me. But, you know, it's a sound, it's a life. And it's something I've given my whole life to and that I share with my band family and crew family, road family. And it's the payoff for us all. They all work, you know, when we, you know, pre-corona life and post-corona life on the road. And so that kind of adulation and that people knowing you and that kind of fame, that's electric and, and, oh my God, and just magnetic. And you just want to like never let go of it. You want to hold it like a, like the comfort pillow of life. I love it. And I guess humility and gratitude and perspective all, yeah, the, all these totally. things play a, that's what I mean. like, a big that's role. That's why, you know, when that fucking daft thing of people like, you know, the, 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 when you hear people say, we're the best band in the world, we're the biggest band in the world, like, I never thought like that. I never thought like that. I never thought like that. I was like, I know we're not. I know I'm not. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do is be um, a devastating version of myself. You know, I push myself to the limit. Whatever we do, we bring out, execute on a stage, in a comment, in an interview, everything is just going to be the best part of ourselves, you know, um, putting our best foot forward. And like, that's, that's all you can do in life. You do that in life. You can have like a really relaxed evening. You can be like really chilled out going, you know, you can't do any better than the best you can do. Um, and that's all we try and do all of us. you know. As we approach the end of the chat, mate, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you for taking the time to do it. And I hope it's been all right Thank for you, you as well. Um, do you sure. find that being a Brit and being British and from the backgrounds that we, just the larger, broader cultural backgrounds that we all share as, as Brits, do you find it kind of allows you to not get as bogged down in some of the, 
the fame game Hollywood stuff? Because I've noticed there's often a key difference between American artists and musicians and, and Brits. Brits just seem to have that kind of self-deprecating humour and the bullshit detector. And there's there's this kind of like just brush it off and, and crack on with it attitude. Yeah, I think, I think that we just like, you know, being English and part of our culture is we, we people are transparent to us, you know, quite good at reading people. And like, you just can't be too flash. And, um, you know, the most impressive people I've ever met in my life, um, someone like Tom Waits or David Bowie. Have you met Tom Waits? Yeah, oh, I wow. have. What's he like? One, one, that's incredible. It's in, I mean, listen, I grilled him for 40 minutes, poor fucker. I wouldn't put him down. <laughs> just, just, I just thought, what is this? You've got it though, haven't so you? If you get that chance. I did. I, I was not tongue-tied. I just grilled him. Grilled him <laughs> senseless about how he wrote, what it was like, experiences, everything. I thought, you know what? He is not leaving this dressing room. And I'm like, he came into our dressing room in San Francisco once with his children. His son wanted to be a drummer, so he met the drummer. And I just, that was it. I was like, you this saw is, your he's, like my, he's my messiah. So I had to just like sit at the foot of his, intellect and ask him of his imagination and just be like what's happening how do you write like that how can i get anywhere close to you what's going on you know and and what came with him was immense humility and just you know not defensive and you know the, I, when i've met the kind of the fair to middling people who sort of like are just kind of you know riding on a wave of average um they're the most sort of stuck up you know yeah yeah and I think it's disarming when people are just, you have nothing to prove. Like, fuck you, I've got nothing to prove. It's like, you know, like, I, I, you know, A, B, and C. You, you can either listen to A, B, and C or not. It makes no difference to me. Thanks for coming. You know, that's it. I imagine David Bowie was a lot like that as well. Just He was, just, he was interesting and funny and, and, and just, you know, great sense of humor. What a life, mate. It's been all right, isn't it? Yeah. It's all right. You know what? I mean? That's why I just, that's why I just keep my mouth shut unless I'm singing. <laughs> and tell us about the new records. Uh, this is kind of uh, this is probably the heaviest stuff you've put out in a while. It's safe to say, right? Yeah, this is um, you know this needed it. The world needed it. I needed it. Uh, the kingdom is a place for like-minded individuals, free of all the bigotry and racism and homophobia and just self-righteousness. It was around a few people that were causing me a lot of damage just at the end of writing the record. And I just hate them so hard. And then I stopped hating them because hate is really like, it's heavy to carry around. Mm -hmm. But I just was like, I realized what I hated was the kind of self-righteous judgment. But, but again, it goes back to that fame thing. And, you know, you everyone gets really judged and everyone knows how to do it best and everyone's fucking perfect and you're not. And um, so I imagined this place, this sort of like Willy Wonka uh, chocolate for the mind. Love you know? it. Yeah, yeah. What a movie. Uh, I love that. And that's the kingdom. And uh, so the record's in there. That's the record's got it. And tell me, did, did you work with Tyler Bates on this? Yeah, I worked with Tyler. Um I love that guy's just stamp on culture from the from the soundtrack stuff to the Guardians of the Galaxy work and his stuff with Manson. He seems like he's like he's got that Midas touch. Yes, he's just a great human being, and um, I had a few lunches with him before we committed 
both sides to go into the studio and work together. And we wrote four or five songs for the record. And um, it was a great experience. And I, I, I probably would consider 100% writing with him again. And, you know, we became really good friends. He lives around the corner, exactly the same age. We've been through similar things, apart from he has uh, $5 billion worth of business to his uh, writing credits, and I don't. So almost on an equal playing field. Almost. Almost. $5 billion. <laughs> um, Gavin, I appreciate your time, man. I've really enjoyed this. And uh, right. take care. Enjoy. Have a great weekend, my friend, and uh, all the best. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.